0: What's up, you guys? I'm Haley. And I'm Andrea. And this is Inhuman, a true crime podcast. So I think we're just going to dive right into today's case. We are going to be covering a murder case that, of course, is absolutely horrific, but there's a bit of a twist slash a little bit of light at the end of the tunnel. So okay. I'm excited to share this story with you guys today. Okay, Angela Marie Samoda, who liked to go by Angie, was born on September 19th, 1964 to Frank and Betty Ruth Samoda. She was born in Pennsylvania, and at some point, the family moved to Alameda, California, where Angie excelled in school and was an extremely friendly person. According to some sources, she was raised by a single mother, but I couldn't find that 100% confirmed, but I believe at some point she was. After graduating high school, Angie enrolled at Southern Methodist University in Dallas, Texas, where she was studying computer science and mechanical engineering. Dang, girl! (laughs) Yeah, and especially back then, like in the eighties, a woman studying computer science and engineering was like trailblazer. You go, girl! Yeah. In college, Angie was very focused on her studies. With classmates recalling that she would often be up late studying. But she was also very social. She was part of the Zeta Tau Alpha sorority and was the social chairman of the sorority. And she was like described as a social butterfly. On October 12th, 1984, a big football game between the University of Texas and University of Oklahoma was happening. So this was a huge rivalry game and there were tons of people in town for it. And the same day, the State Fair of Texas was taking place in Dallas. And this is actually one of the most highly attended state fairs in the country, bringing millions of people to the area. So, oh, wow. the the area was popping this day. I didn't know that. That's interesting. I'm going to have to go one year. <laughs> yeah, it's supposed to be really cool. 20-year-old Angie and two of her friends went to the fair that day, and they then decided to go out that night. So she was with Russell Buchanan and Anita Kadala. Anita so Anita was a fellow SMU student that she knew from classes. And Russell was a friend that Angie had actually met at a bar and he was actually a little bit older. He had graduated with a degree in architecture and he was getting ready to go to grad school for architecture. Okay. So that evening, Angela, Anita, and Russell went out to several different bars and they ended the night at a dance club called the Rio Room where they stayed until after midnight. Russell later recalled that at that club, Angie was mingling, quote, going from table to table talking to people. So she really knew everyone, and she actually got them into that club. It was like the second floor of one of the bars, and she talked to enough people, knew (laughs) enough people to get them up there. So they were there until after midnight, and when they left, Angie drove both of her friends home. So around 1 a.m., she dropped Russell off at his apartment on Matilda Street, which was about a five-minute walk from her condo on Amesbury Drive. Angela then dropped Anita off, and then she decided to head to her boyfriend's apartment to say goodnight. At the start of the year, I always have the best intentions, and this year I am very focused on eating balanced meals to keep myself and my growing baby healthy. And checking off eating well this year is super easy thanks to Daily Harvest. Daily Harvest delivers delicious harvest bowls, soups, flatbreads, snacks, smoothies, and more directly to your door. With nourishing and easy to prep options, I never have to think twice about what to eat for my next meal, snack, or dessert. Everything stays fresh in my freezer until I'm ready to enjoy it. This helps me reduce time, stress, anxiety, (laughs) and food waste. This has really helped me stay on track and makes my life so much easier. Well, as a super busy mom myself, I'm always looking for ways to make mealtime
1: easier too. And daily harvest comes through for me when I need them the most. Recently, I tried their harvest bowls and I got the sweet potato and wild rice hash. And not only was it delicious, it was also very filling. But of course, afterwards, I needed to top it off with something sweet and the raspberry and fig bites did the trick. I'm super excited to try their smoothies next
0: because your girl loves her some smoothies. <laughs> we are so excited that today's episode is sponsored by Daily Harvest. If eating well is a goal for 2023, you can let Daily Harvest support you on that journey. Go to dailyharvest.com inhuman to get up to $40 off your first box. That's dailyharvest.com inhuman for up to $40 off
1: your first box dailyharvest.com slash inhuman
0: so her boyfriend was ben mccall and he was a construction site manager and he was a bit older than angie but they had a good relationship and angie's friends all liked him ben did not go out with angie and her friends that night because he had an early morning at work the next day so angie wanted to go say goodnight. So she drove over to his apartment. They did so. And then she headed home. Okay. At 1.45 a.m., Ben got a call from Angie's condo. Now, keep in mind, this is the 80s. Cell phones. Very obsolete. (laughs) Yeah. Not a lot of people had them. So she was home by now. And Angie was calling from her condo. So this woke Ben up. And he was very confused at first with what Angie was saying, not understanding, kind of like she was talking in code. And eventually Angie said to him, "I need you just to just talk to me. I'm freaked out." Oh no. So Angie then told him that there was a man in her condo that had asked to use the phone and the bathroom. What? So he was in the bathroom as Angie was calling Ben. And she basically called him to feel safer, you know, feeling like right. if she was on the phone with someone, she'd be a little bit safer. Yeah. Like if something happened, he could call for help. Exactly. So Ben asked if the man was inside the condo when she got home or if she let him in, but it was unclear. Although through the investigation, it sounds like she did let him in after she got home. Oh. So they were kind of talking and she kind of just kept saying, please just talk to me. So he did. But then suddenly Angie told him that she would call him right back and hung up. So Ben waited a hot minute to call her back. And when he did, Angie did not pick up the phone. So he immediately got into his car and drove over to Angie's condo. When he got there, he was knocking on the door. No answer. The door was locked, so he couldn't get inside. But thankfully, because remember, this is the 80s, cell phones weren't very common. Right. Ben actually had a very early generation car phone because of his job as a construction site manager. Nice. So he was able to call the police. And 911 was not really commonly used back then, so he actually had to call information and then was connected to the police. At 2.17 a.m., just about half an hour after Angie first called Ben when she got home, police arrived at the scene. So the officers began knocking on the door, but still they got no answer. So they contacted the condo manager to open the door. And when they got inside, they found a horrific scene. No. Angela Samoda was naked, lying on her bed next to a giant stuffed bunny. She had been stabbed 18 times, including stab wounds to her chest so intense that they left her heart basically outside of her chest.
1: Oh my god.
0: The medical examiner determined that she had died from the stab wounds to her heart, and she had also been raped. Police were able to collect evidence from blood, from under Angie's fingernails, And evidence from the rape, but again, it's the 80s, so they really couldn't do much with it DNA wise. But they were able to determine something. The person who killed Angie was a non secretor. So, a non secretor is a person who does not leave antigens that distinguish their blood type in any of their bodily fluids.
1: What? Okay, I've never even heard of this.
0: Yeah, basically, their bodily fluids don't... You can't figure out their blood type from their bodily fluids, and it's not very common. Only about 20% of the population are non-secretors. Interesting. Angela's roommate and best friend at SMU, Sheila Waisaki, had been at her mother's house the night of the murder. Sheila and Angie met in their freshman year, and at first, the two actually were kind of just roommates, not really friends, And Sheila recalls that Angie had a boyfriend that she didn't like. So that's kind of what kept them apart. But when Angie broke up with that boyfriend, they became extremely close. So they lived together for a while. But when Angie started dating Ben, she wanted to be a bit more independent. He was older. She kind of wanted to, you know, grow up a little bit, I guess. So she moved out of the dorms and moved into a condo by herself. But Angie and Sheila remained extremely close. When Sheila heard about Angie, she was completely shattered, but she immediately became adamant to bring Angie's killer to justice. Wow. So there were a few suspects that were identified pretty quickly. The first, of course, was Angie's boyfriend, Ben, the one who she saw last that night and the one who called the police. But he was ruled out really quickly because his alibi checked out and he was also a secretor. So he was ruled out. <laughs> okay. Another early suspect was Angie's ex-boyfriend, the one that Sheila hated, and reportedly he had previously threatened Angie with a knife and had even cut up her clothes, so he seemed like a very promising suspect, Right, but he was also a secretor, and I believe he had an alibi as well, so he was ruled out. Okay. Now, the biggest suspect in the case from the start was Russell Buchanan, Angie's friend who had gone out with her that night. He claimed that after Angie dropped him off at his apartment, he went to bed and fell asleep quickly. But police did not believe his story. Hmm. His alibi could not be corroborated by anybody, and he lived five minutes away. He was out with them that night. And even more compelling, he was a non secreter. Oh, shit. Okay. Yeah. So that's uh, yeah. just too big of a coincidence, but yeah. Just 20% of the population is a non-secreter. So this was pretty big. Yeah. So Russell Buchanan was initially interviewed on Monday night, just two days after the murder. And he he had worked his first job that day after reportedly traveling all weekend. So investigators were actually initially put off because Russell was saying he didn't know, even know that Angie had been murdered. So they were confused because this had been all over the news. He lived five minutes away. They were friends. And they were like, how could you not know? Right. But Russell explained that early on Sunday morning, he had traveled to his friend's wedding and then went straight to his family's home in Houston for a pre-planned visit. And then he said after that, he went home and spent all night studying for grad school before going to work the next day. So he said he hadn't watched the news at all. And even though him and Angie were friends, they weren't so close that it was like they were talking every day. So it wasn't weird that, you know, he hadn't tried to reach her. So this actually did kind of make sense. It's the 80s. Social media is not a thing. You're not reading the news everywhere. So it seems unbelievable. But at the same time, it does kind of make sense. Right. Russell's apartment was searched, but they found nothing. He also passed a polygraph test, and investigators didn't have a lot against him, but they were convinced that he was the guy, so they began surveilling him. And he was under surveillance for the next six months, during which they would also periodically bring him in for interviews. They were trying to see if his story would change, and they kept giving him more polygraph tests. During all of this, he never got a lawyer because he was innocent. He was like, why would I get a lawyer? Right. But investigators were convinced he was the guy, especially just because what are the odds he was a non secretor and yeah. everything else lined up?
1: But at the same time, it's like when people hyper, or when investigators hyper focus on one suspect, I feel like they lose sight mm-hmm. of other evidence that might point in a direction, like a better direction than just yeah. him being a non secretor. I mean, yeah, only 20% of the population is that but it could just be a coincidence you know
0: yeah yeah exactly but they were stuck on him during one interview they began like abruptly showing him graphic crime scene photos and demanding that he confessed and he later said how badly that scarred him yeah but his story never changed It stayed consistent, and at one point, investigators began claiming that a polygraph test he took came back as inconclusive, so that kind of forced him to get a lawyer to protect himself because he could tell they were trying to pin this on him. Yeah. So by the spring of 1985, investigators were still convinced that Russell Buchanan had killed Angie, but they had a bit of a problem. Russell had been accepted into grad school in London— and police had no reason to prevent him from going. He wasn't charged. They didn't have any anything legal to keep him there. Right. So that's when Sheila Wysocki came into play. Investigators brought Sheila in and told her about all of the quote-unquote evidence that they had against Russell, including that he failed a polygraph test. They also implied that Russell had intentionally left the area that weekend after the murder. Mm. So they were really trying to convince her that he was the guy, and she believed them. I mean, she's being presented all of this evidence that seems real and seems to add up. And she actually agreed to go to dinner with Russell while wearing a wire to try to get him to confess. But his story stayed the same. No confession happened. So that failed, and Russell left for grad school, and the case went cold. For 20 years. Jeez. 20 years, man. So Sheila, at this point, had moved on with her life. She moved to Nashville. She had two kids. But she was still determined to find out what had happened to her friend all those years ago. So she said she was always scared, knowing that whoever killed her best friend had never been caught. And this had totally changed her life. She never went back to college after this happened. Mm -hmm. And she just always was trying to figure out what happened to Angie. Yeah. And Russell was still her prime suspect. He had finished grad school. He had moved back to Dallas and he had actually started a successful architecture firm. And he was married, and while he was living his life, it was still haunted by this accusation and unsolved murder. In 2004, Sheila became, started to become extremely frustrated about Angie's murder still being unsolved. Yeah. She said, quote, I did not like the fact that Russell got to be this big deal architect and live his life when he had taken the life of my roommate. That bothered me. Yeah. So she kind of started fixating on this a little bit more. She had always been thinking about Angie's murder, but she was starting to fixate it, on, fixate on it a little bit more. And one day in 2004, she said she was doing uh, at home doing Bible study when Angela appeared to her. So she said she saw Angela at the foot of her bed, And Angela said nothing, but Sheila knew what had to be done. She had to get Angela's case reopened. Wow. So with that, Sheila began making calls to the Dallas Police Department. She was begging for any information, and she was asking them to reopen the case. And she kept calling. She got former friends and sorority sisters of Angie's to call, and she reportedly called them over 750 times within the next year.
1: Hell yeah, girl. I mean, I would do the same thing if it was my best friend that had gotten murdered and they were just, I mean, you never know what they're doing behind the scenes, but 20 years and nothing.
0: Yeah. And they basically were telling her there's nothing we can do. So she was like not accepting that. She kept calling. She was determined. Yeah. In the meantime, she also started doing her own research. She started looking into similar attacks in the area And she had a dedicated room in her house that she would just pour over evidence and theories. Like she was all in on this, but because the Dallas police department wasn't really cooperating with her, she could not access any of the case files. So because of this, she went and got her private investigator's license so that she could better access the documents and reports from the case.
1: Wow.
0: I read in one source that at, some point her husband had made a comment like after she had made some connection he made a comment like oh you would be a great private investigator and then that's kind of what like sparked that idea in her mind yeah she was like checkmate (laughs) yeah so she ended up passing her test becoming a licensed private investigator and she began working on small like theft and cheating scandals with her neighbors to kind of build up her rapport as a P.I. Finally, thanks to Sheila's badgering and hard work, in 2006, the Dallas Police Department reopened Angie's case and finally began talking to Sheila about the evidence. Now, initially, the Dallas PD told Sheila that the DNA evidence collected from Angie's murder had been lost when the police department had been flooded years earlier. Oh, Lord. (sighs) This wasn't 100% not true, I don't think, and it's unclear if there was some evidence lost, but there was still enough evidence. No good. So Detective Linda Crum was the new investigator on the case, and she found that not all the DNA evidence had been lost, and there was enough for modern DNA testing. So she began running the DNA against people in the area with a criminal record, and it took two years from the time she took over the case but it was worth it because the DNA came back with a match. Oh my gosh, I have goosebumps all over my entire body. <laughs> In 2008, Sheila received a phone call from Linda Crum. And Linda told her, quote, we got him. Russell Buchanan, who was living in Dallas and working as an architect, received a phone call from the Dallas Police Department telling him that they had finally found Angela Samota's killer. It was not him. Okay. Oh,
1: I also have more goosebumps <laughs> on top of my goosebumps because I was like, oh, my God, why would they call
0: him? <laughs> yeah. It was not him. Okay, the police good. officially apologized to Russell, and oh, he actually good. came out later and said that he holds no grudge against the Dallas Police Department and knows that they were just doing their job. Yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so when Detective Crumb told Sheila the name of Angie's killer, she was in shock. No. She said, quote, I could feel my world turning upside down. For 23 years, in my mind, Russell Buchanan was the murderer. And in one split second, everything I thought I knew was no longer correct. I had made it my life goal to get this man behind bars. And suddenly, I felt so guilty.
1: Well, it's not her fault, though, because the police literally led her with false Mm -hmm. information, mind you. Or maybe not false, but over-exaggerated and... and not factual information Mm -hmm. so it's not your fault girl
0: yeah but she was in complete shock when detective crumb told her that the killer was convicted felon donald andrew bess okay and bess had quite the legal record in 1978 he was actually convicted of aggravated rape and kidnapping and was sentenced to 25 years in prison Yet. But he was let out on parole in 1984, and that's when he raped and murdered Angela. Aren't they always
1: let out? I swear to God. Mm -hmm.
0: Like, why? Yeah. Why was he let out?
1: Okay, good behavior. Well, guess what? You don't really get that luxury because you your bad behavior got you where you are. Just serve your freaking time.
0: And he only served six years of a 25-year sentence. Insane. So he was on parole for about a year, and then in 1985, he was arrested again for another aggravated rape, kidnapping, and sexual assault. And with that, he was sentenced to life in prison.
1: I'm so curious how, I mean, I'm assuming because he didn't murder the other victims, they were able to identify him, maybe? And that's why he got caught
0: those times? Yeah, I think that that's what happened. But why did he kill
1: kill Angie?
0: It's unclear, and Mm. it happened in that one year that he was out of prison. He wasn't connected to Angie's murder until 22 years later. He was 60 years old and serving that life sentence when he was finally connected through DNA. So he was
1: already in prison.
0: Yep. So this isn't fully confirmed, but is what police believe happened. So they believe that Bess saw Angie at a bar... And that he became fixated on her. They think that he likely followed her home that night. And that he felt he got into her house. And then they believe that he may have began begun stabbing her with a kitchen knife when he heard Ben knocking on the door. So when Ben was outside oh trying to get in. And then they believe that he killed her while Ben was on the phone calling the police. Oh my gosh. Now, like I said, this isn't fully confirmed that this is the exact timeline, but it's definitely a possibility. So, in 2008, Bess was officially connected to Angela's murder through DNA. His DNA was found at the scene and on Angela, so there were no questions about if he was the killer. He went to trial in 2010, during which several other women came forward to testify that Bess had assaulted them. His ex-wife testified that he had abused her and their children in the three years that they were married in the early 70s what a disgusting piece of shit yeah he was awful and russell buchanan also testified against him sheila drove over six hours from nashville to dallas to be there for the trial to see her best friend's killer finally brought to justice Thankfully, it didn't take much to prove that Bess was the killer. He, the jury deliberated for an hour. And on June 8th, 2010, Donald Bess was found guilty of the rape and murder of Angela Samoda. Wow. For this, he was sentenced to death. I was going to ask that. I was literally,
1: that was literally in my head. If you're already serving a life sentence in prison, can you get put on the death or get put on
0: death row so yeah i guess you can yeah if you if you're found guilty of another crime yeah yeah so he of course had appeals after this he filed his first appeal in 2013 it was rejected in august of the same year he filed a judicial review petition to the u.s supreme court that was denied And then in 2016, the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals refused his next appeal, upholding his initial sentence. Good. He still had more appeals and no execution date was ever set, but it never would be because on October 8th, 2022, he died from a heart attack while on death row. Wow. Now, like I said at the beginning of the episode, there was a little bit of light at the end of this tunnel because there are a few positives that came out of this case. First of all, in 2016, the Dallas Police Department established a cold case unit to better work on these cases that had gone cold and really had no one working on them. So that was a very strong positive. Yeah. And Sheila Waisaki continued her PI practice. So at first, she said that she only got her license to help solve Angie's murder. And after that was solved, she wasn't planning on doing any more. Yeah. But... Many, many people started coming forward, asking her for help, writing her letters, just begging them to help her. Wow. And she finally decided to do so. So she now has her own firm called Without Warning Private Investigation, and she's working to help families who's, who just have like almost lost hope, basically. Yeah. Sheila also founded a nonprofit group called Without Warning: Fight Back to educate women about self-defense and rape prevention. And finally, Russell Buchanan was exonerated. So he was never arrested or officially charged with anything. But for years, many people still suspected him, and that hung over him. Yeah. While Sheila initially believed he was the killer, when she first started digging into the case, she ultimately helped him get his name back. And they actually became friends... Sheila told him all about how she was convinced <laughs> that he was the killer and how she was trying to get him put away. Wow. And she apologized. She felt extremely guilty. But he, I think, had pretty much the same response as he did to the police. Like, I understand you were just trying to right. find justice for your friend. And they're actually really close friends to this day.
1: Oh, that's amazing.
0: Russell is now a successful, celebrated architect. He's won a ton of architecture awards and has been in Architectural Digest. He's, like, super successful. Angela Samoda was a friendly, loving soul, and her life was taken way too soon. She is remembered for the smart, caring, and kind person she was, and she is missed by her friends and family every day. But at least she finally has justice. So that is the story of Angela Simoda. It's just incredible how much good came out of it in the end. And, you know, people are still remembering her for the amazing person she was. Yeah. So that's all I have for you guys today. Thank you so much for listening as always. And until next time, keep it human. Bye, guys.